Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of the Strength for All podcast. I apologize for the poor audio in my intro and also a little bit of audio problems with a little bit of a feedback thing on my sound during the podcast. I just ordered new microphones. I'm waiting for them to come in. Let's talk about my guest today, Casey Nicole, registered dietitian. We spent a lot of today's podcast talking about what it takes, how you become a registered dietitian, and then also some dietetic-related questions. If you have any more questions, make sure you check out the links in the description. Talk to Casey on her social media. Without any further ado, let's get into it. I think of, uh, do you know Dr. Spencer Nadolsky? Love him. He's awesome. I saw you actually, you posted something from him in your story today. I always share his stuff in my story. Yeah, I think of him because he's got the ski last name too. Dude, he's so good. He's so, he's one of the doctors that I actually like really trust. He's like, I, I wish I was like half of the fitness communicator that he was. Yeah. Or is. No, 100%. He's awesome. Yeah. Although the one thing interesting I noticed is I don't think he's as good on TikTok. And I, 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 I don't know if it's just because of the platform. It's like he has his messages more like attenuated toward Instagram or he's not used to it. But I feel like his stuff hits way better on Instagram. So I, I felt like I watched one of his TikToks, not the one I posted, but another one. And it just seemed like very awkward to me like I can't really pinpoint what it was but it was like something is not clicking right in it yeah Yeah, I agree I I think the fact that I'm not good at any social media platform helps me because then I'm equally bad on everything (laughs) that's fair there's no expectation it's like you just go so for him we're like (laughs) he's he's so good on Instagram and then you get to TikTok and it's like uh he's okay For yeah. sure. I feel like everyone has that one platform that they're better at, you know? What do you like specifically about the, – the first topic of our discussions, we're talking about Spencer Nadolsky. <laughs> what do you like specifically <laughs> about him? So I'm thinking um, – obviously, like, we can do a whole intro thing. I had something – No, no, this is, for... already, this is already going on the podcast. Like, there's no intro. We're already, we're already rolling. Oh, all right. This is like we're Joe going. Rogan gets high and then starts the podcast. This is like what's – yeah. that's, ex- that's exactly I where we are it. right now. I love it. So where do you want to start? You want to start with just an intro? No, I want to start with talking about Spencer Nadolsky. What do you, what do you like Spencer most Nadolsky. about What do you, what do you like right, most about go. him? Yeah, I honestly, I appreciate his humor because I feel like it's a fine line between trying to find something that is like catchy and that people are going to laugh at and offending people. Um, and I think that he walks that line and I really like it. Same with Jordan. They do the same thing. Yeah, he's so good. But I also think like one of the things I really like about uh, Spencer is that his like when he puts out information like because some people will just do like the funny thing. Right. And it's like there's not really any substance. There's like it's just funny. And I'm like, cool. Like you can just laugh at something. Um, but he like really nicely blends like scientific facts and like evidence-based information with humor yeah yeah I think I think also he talks very much so to the lay person so it's not all of these you know fancy scientific terms it's something okay if you are an average person who doesn't know a lot about nutrition or you know training you're going to know exactly what he's talking about so I like that right so when it comes to your what you do right in terms of you know, communicating with people on Instagram or social media and so on and so forth. Tell me a little bit about that. So your name, I'm just so everybody is on the same page. I know we're like five, 10 minutes into the podcast at this point, but I'm here with uh, Casey Nicole, as she is known professionally. Uh, She's a registered dietitian. She has a master in science, right? From the University of Ohio. 
Ohio University. Close. What, are, <laughs> are, they, are they different? They, I don't even know if there's a, a University of Ohio. There's Ohio State University and then Ohio University. So, you know. Got it. Potato, right. potato. Which one's better? Oh, that's a heart. So I am, I'm an Ohio State fan at heart. So I'm going to say OSU for sure. Uh, but you're supposed to say the one you went to. That's the thing. Well, I went to both of them. So it's hard for me to choose. Right. I know. I know. Okay. Hard. Okay. Got it. Got it. The one, the one that has the better football team. Yeah, there we go. That's exactly. exactly. Perfect. So how do you, how do you use social media to kind of communicate your message out to people in terms of uh, nutrition diet, all of those things that are such touchy subjects sometimes, and also like big topics? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say I use kind of a mix of everything. So I like to, one, make sure that, you know, the lay person can understand what I'm saying, not using super technical scientific terms. But I also think it's important to, you know, educate people in the correct way with the correct terms. Um, So while I'm not going to be using, you know, these super 30 character long words, I am going to be using things that are specific to the profession um, of nutrition. So I feel like I'm kind of in the middle. And same thing as far as humor goes, some some things I make are going to be walking the line between (laughs) borderline offensive to some people. And some of them are just going to be your classical, you know, like family humor. So I feel like I'm kind of a mix of everything. And I just kind of do what feels right to me. And I don't really draw any, you know, hard borderlines or anything like that. Now, in terms of the the platform, what what platform do you primarily live on on social media or where do you put out the most content? I would say Instagram for sure. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. And are you on any other platforms? Yeah, I am on um, TikTok is something I recently got into. Um, I also have ventured into LinkedIn, which I feel like is interesting because that's a way more professional platform than yeah. either of those. So that one's definitely one that I've I've been investing some time into. I've been getting a ton of like requests, like connection requests through LinkedIn lately, and I do not use LinkedIn well. I just uh, it's the it's the social it's my, it's the last social <laughs> media site on my list. When it it probably shouldn't be. I've heard some good things, um, but if if why don't you talk me through the process of kind of how you got into becoming an RD, a registered dietitian. And then before we even started this podcast, one thing that really interested me was you mentioned that you don't really think the RD certification is really that important. I don't, that's not really the way you put it. I think you said you don't place as high of a regard on it as some people do. So maybe start out, tell me a little bit about how you got into, you know, how you started and how you got into becoming an RD and then we'll go from there. Yeah, sounds good. So how I got into it, I was a competitive gymnast for about 10 years. So from age six to 16, roughly. Um, And like I said, I was going to compete collegiately, ended up getting some injuries. um, But I love the sport of gymnastics, I would have continued if I could. Um, And so thinking about how nutrition fuels your performance and how important it is to athletes, I really got started in that realm. So kind of athletics, Um, more that side of things and then slowly transitioned as I, you know, incorporated this just into my regular lifestyle, I transitioned into more of lifestyle clients um, and just everyday people who want to get better and stronger in their own life. So I kind of do a balance of the two, both athletics working with more, you know, high achieving athletes and also the everyday person. So you weren't in it like for the term for weight loss and you also weren't like one of these people who kind of you know the reason why you got into it was purely academic it was more of the practical application side of things in terms of sports 
Yes, a hundred percent. I so I am a big nerd. I love school, but I also am a. Then where are your glasses? Come on. I know I have blue lights over here somewhere, Um, but yeah, I'm a big proponent of experience because I feel like a lot of times RDs especially weigh a lot on the research and schooling side of things and they kind of neglect the, you know, behavioral side. And so I wanted to really come into the profession, merging the two and realizing how important human behavior is, as well as, you know, looking at the evidence-based research too. So correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't the, uh, the field of dietetics kind of, is that the correct term I'm using there? The field of dietetics? From what I've seen, at least, because I've had an RD on the podcast before, um, and I obviously, like, I coach people in nutrition myself. What I've seen, like, trend-wise is, to me, the field seems like it's kind of moving in the direction of which you describe, where it's less about, because a lot of the technical aspects of, you know, what a dietitian does are either pretty basic stuff or it's stuff that's like so nuanced that the average person doesn't even need to care about it, right? To me, like the practical application direction that I've seen the field be, been going the last probably like five years or so is more in the direction of applying it to habit change and behavior change. Would that be an accurate statement or have you seen something different? Yeah, so I think every every school, every internship and every person is gonna you know apply things differently. From what I've seen, there's a lot of, and I'm not trying to shit talk anyone or shit talk the profession by any means, but just from my personal experience, I've seen a lot of registered dietitians kind of getting on their high horse, like, hey, no one else can prescribe, you know, nutrition um, information or coaching unless you're a registered dietitian. And I just don't agree with that at all. Um, I think that I know a lot of people that I would trust a lot more than someone with the RD credential when it comes to Um, you know, giving nutrition advice. So I think it depends on the person as far as, you know, where they stand in evidence-based versus, um, you know, lifestyle changes. And I've seen, I've seen it all, but I've definitely seen a rise in, um, you know, thinking that you need to get that certification to give nutrition advice. And I just don't think that's true. Mm, Okay. I see. So where would you say, where do you, uh, believe the line kind of lies between like what an RD does and where someone who does not have that experience or that uh, schooling should, shouldn't really, the waters that they really shouldn't go into. Yeah. So I think the biggest kind of line that you're walking on is um, meal plans is going to be a big one. So only registered dietitians can prescribe meal plans. Um, That's a huge one. Now macros are not a meal plan. So like, you know, giving someone Um, macro recommendations is definitely something that would be okay for someone with experience to do, even if they don't have the certification. Um, And I think, you know, as far as (laughs) walking that line goes, it is a very fine line. But like I said, as long as you have real life experience and, you know, maybe an additional nutrition certification, I think that it's totally fine, you know, giving nutrition advice, not necessarily prescribing for like a chronic disease like diabetes, but just giving general nutrition advice to your, you know, average healthy person, I think would be totally fine. Okay. So you think the two biggest things would be prescribing specific diet plans to people and then also giving, using food as a uh, cure or as a treatment. Correct. Those would be the two big things. But outside of that, you feel like most 
coaches or people who at least have some amount of experience in nutrition are fine doing stuff outside of that. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's still a very fine line. So there's a lot of nuances that I could go into. But those are the two main things is like, you know, prescribing something as far as someone with a chronic disease goes, and also just meal plans in general, telling someone exactly what they should be eating and what amounts. Um, Yeah. So what would be an example of a nuance there? There are many, many. Um, So I would say, well, one, you shouldn't be giving nutrition advice if you have no experience and no certification. Like those are the two um, things you either have to have one or the other. So in my opinion, you can get a, a, you know, shitty nutrition certification and not know your shit and do things. And you're like, oh, well, I have a certification. It's okay to do that. I think that experience with real life people in real life situations is always going to trump that. So when it comes to that, I think combining the two, a certification and experience is going to be, you know, the, the best route to go as far as that goes. Yeah. And I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, if you agree or disagree with this, but would you say it's a, because there's some people who have a, who have a lot of experience and have been doing it for a long time, that still don't know what the fuck they're doing. <laughs> they still don't know what, what the fuck they're giving in terms of, uh, they'll tell you that you need to, you know, you, you ketosis is required for fat loss. And the only way you can lose weight is if you're on a keto diet or just tons of different crazy things or like the carnivore, you can, there's pills that help you burn fat when you sleep and all this. Stuff. And like, would you agree that there's also like a new a line between like, it's not just experience and or education. It's also like, are you actually good at your job and following evidence-based practice? Oh, yeah, 100%. And it's it's funny you brought that up. I actually saw a registered dietitian, I think it was on TikTok the other day, um, and they were giving recommendations for protein for an active individual, right? So you and I know, you know, the, the general rule of thumb is like one gram per pound of body weight for, you know, a healthy weight individual as far as protein recommendation goes. And they were saying something like 0.6 grams per kilogram, which is extremely low for an, for an athletic person. And to me, just because they had the RD certification, they were saying those things, but they had no idea what the hell they were talking about. So that's something I see all the time that's really frustrating. Yeah, you, you know what's interesting is the other RD I actually had on my podcast, uh, her – well, she obviously has a very different background from you. She actually works with worked with people like elderly people primarily. Um, and one of the things she mentioned was like general protein recommendations for uh, athletes and such. Is they actually seem to be getting they? I know it's probably there's probably there's a there's definitely a lot of nuance because now that I think of this, I think of a counterpoint to my own statement I'm about to make. But they're get they've there's recently been um, guidelines that have actually lowered them. Have you heard about any of this? Yeah, yeah, I have. I feel like I followed a, a research review. I can't, the name is slipping me, but there was a recent like research review that I read um, talking about that. And yes, one gram per pound is probably overshooting it. I don't think anyone really needs that. But for most people, they're not going to hit that anyway. So having that as a you know, higher goal to aim for, I think is is beneficial. So again, it comes back to the behavioral piece. Like, if you aim higher and they come a little short, but they're just where they should be, then to me, that's a success. So it comes back to that. So what do you think about um, people who are not like uh, realistically going to be able to get one gram per pound of uh, 
one gram of protein per pound of body weight, or maybe they have a very large amount of weight to lose, so one gram per pound of body weight would be a lot of calories, and that would probably put them too high, or they're not, I know these are different circumstances, but they're also not, or perhaps not good at tracking, or have no experience with tracking their protein intake. Just the general thread here is someone who doesn't feel like they are able to realistically hit that protein number. What would your advice or thoughts be on how to deal with someone in that situation? Yeah, so I have had many clients in that situation. Me too, um, that's I why think, I ask. Yeah, yeah, of course. So I think, one, if someone is not tracking, it's important to realize, um, you know, your sources of protein because some protein sources are going to be way more, um, you know, used by the body and able to be used than others. So, Do you think, think tracking about, is, is, is required? No, mm-mm. No, definitely not required. I lean more towards tracking for most people that I do work with just because it's such a good education tool, but it's definitely not required. Um, So anyway, going back to, you know, your animal source proteins versus your plant source proteins, um, where your animal is going to be a much more quality source of protein that your body is able to use with regards to, um, you know, using it in your muscles and your tissues than a plant-based protein source. So kind of talking about those kinds of things and getting more quality sources of protein, I think would be more important in that aspect. What if they're vegan? It becomes tricky. Vegans is like, it, it becomes very tricky. Um, I have had a couple of clients who are vegan. I, I think it comes down to, you probably have to track. If you're really serious about hitting your protein and you know having these body composition goals, I think being a vegan tracking is definitely going to be important because there's not a lot of high quality vegan sources of protein that are going to get you to that amount. Well, one of the things about uh, people who have vegan diets is they generally tend to on average, just eat less calories than people who have, you know, an omnivore diet. Right. And people who are vegan also tend to on average be more conscious of their food decisions from what I've understood, from what I understand. Um, So, that might be right up their alley <laughs> anyway, just doing the tracking. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think, um, if you think about it, you know, think of animal foods, um, and then think of plant foods, which one is going to fill you up more, um, more quickly and be less amount of calories animal versus plant. Right. So it's well, be- me as my, as being me, I would be like, well, there's a lot of nuance to it. It depends on if we're talking about lean proteins, are we talking about high fat proteins? Are we talking about like, are we talking about like sugars? Like, you know, uh, something, for example, like something that's, you know, there's lots of vegan treats that are plant-based, but they have a crap ton of sugar and like coconut fat. Right. True. Yeah. Yeah. So, so my, co- about- my thought is it depends. <laughs> that's my answer. It does. Like anything with nutrition, it depends. But let's say for the average person, you know, that doesn't eat any fruits and vegetables. If they all of a sudden start start adding a lot of fruits and veggies, they're probably going to be a lot fuller um, and a lot less calories than someone who eats, you know, dairy products and full fat meat products and all of those kinds of things. So to me, I think like your high fiber, you know, foods that are in the plant based group because animal foods don't have fiber. um, Those are going to fill you up more for less amount of calories overall. And just so everybody knows, Oreos are vegan. (laughs) They are. They are. 100%. That means they're healthy. It's got it. Yeah. It's got to be. (laughs) Right. So so after going back to where you, I know we're we're kind of jumping all over the place here, but going back to where you, you, you know, you went to school as a dietitian or to become a dietitian, when, at what point did you decide that that was what you wanted to do? Did like, did you know this in high school? Did you know this, uh, 
you know, did you start out majoring this or did you change your major halfway through? Like what was kind of the path? Yeah, great question. So this is something that I actually am shooting myself in the foot for. Um, I wanted, I knew that I wanted to do something related to nutrition. And to me being a freshman in college, I was like, all right, well, I have to be a registered dietitian if I want to give nutrition advice. That was kind of where the, um, you know, the space was at that point. So I was like, all right, well, this is my only option. I have to become a registered dietitian. Um, and now I am happy I did it, but I guess old me didn't know that there were other avenues I could go to, you know, not become a registered dietitian and still do something in the field of nutrition. So I am happy I did it, but um, definitely not necessary for especially the online coaching that I do now. Um, but it definitely is kind of a leg up from from some other coaches. So Yeah, because if someone sees they're trying to get a nutrition coach and they know like anything about the fact that like anybody on the face of the planet can call themselves a nutritionist, regardless of whether or not they have a certification, but an RD actually requires like, uh, you know, a significant amount of schooling to get, you know, yeah. they would probably choose the RD. If, if, if it's two people who they trust equally, they would probably, if they're a logical person, go for the RD. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say the getting the RD certification, you have to go through a lot, right? I got my master's degree at the same time I did, over a thousand hours of unsu of supervised practice, which was completely unpaid, um, as well as you know studying for the exam for a couple months. So there's a lot you have to go through. So that's why you know I do put a lot of weight in the certification and you know what it holds. But there's also other ways to get that experience. You know I could have gone a whole different route and still kind of gotten to the same place if that makes sense. Right, but you also need to do continuing ed education for the RD, right? Yes. Yeah. Unfortunately, so a lot. before we Go get ahead. into that, I think it would be a good idea to kind of maybe just walk through people because th a lot of people don't know this. But what we, we know that in order to become a nutritionist, what do you got to do? Anyone can really nothing. call them. <laughs> nothing. You, you just, yeah, you just put the label, give yourself the label of nutritionist and you are a nutritionist. Yeah. But in order to be an RD, what does the process look like? does it differ depending on where you are and like what exactly do you go through from schooling from like the beginning the day you get out of high school until the day you call yourself an rd what does that all entail like what does the entire process entail i think going into detail with that would be very interesting yeah for sure so first and foremost is a dpd which is a didactic program in dietetics I'm pretty sure, hopefully I got that right. Um, but it's a DPD. And so it's basically, you know, I got that in undergrad that was going through four years of undergraduate schooling to get that, take all the courses. Um, and in 2024, so, I believe so, that... So that's the, uh, that's essentially your bachelor's degree, right? Your four year... Right. And, and do it during that, you have like your gen ed credits, right? Your general mm -hmm. education credits, but then a lot of like specialty like courses, right? That would mm -hmm. be so, like, what would be an example of some of the coursework that you do at that point? Yeah, so one of the, the main um, core courses is medical nutrition therapy, MNT, which is basically, you know, talking about chronic diseases and nutrition therapies for those. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. And, uh, but you have a variety of different, I'm sure, like required courses and also like, uh, do you have to take like biology? Do you have to take like physics? Like what else? Oh, yeah, we had all the fun science courses, biology, chemistry, lots of lots of chemistry, which was unfortunate. <laughs> um, and then some fun things like food science. So thinking about like how different ingredients combine with each other in dishes, you know, the nutritional properties of all of them. So some fun stuff too. Cool. 
What was your favorite course in undergrad, and what was your least favorite course? Okay, um, least favorite for sure was chemistry. Was it or uh, is it organic chemistry? Because my brother was a biology major, and he said organic chemistry was the worst class period. So organic chemistry was my favorite chemistry, really? actually. Okay. I know. Everyone's either one or the other. Um, the general chemistry I did not like, but I actually did like organic chemistry because I felt like it applied more to what I was going to be doing um, in nutrition. So those would definitely be my least favorite. I think my favorite course was I took a sports nutrition course. Um, so that filled like an elective that you can choose, you know, your specific area of um, of interest. And so I did sports nutrition. And that was a really good one. Because it seems like it's right up your, it's exactly what you're interested in, why you got into doing yeah. it in the first place. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. So the path, so you start out, you go through your undergrad, you do all your gen ed credits, you do these specialized, specialized classes. You have some that are, you know, you can take like you just said, electives, others that you are like set in stone that you have to take these specific courses. After you get through all of that, um, what's the next, you, do you graduate um, do you, and then select a new place to go? Can you go to the same university? Like what's the, what's the next step? Yeah. So this is the fun part. Um, this was probably the worst time during this whole thing. So you have to, basically it's called a matching process. So you have to, it's kind of, I think um, doctors go through a similar, similar mm -hmm. process. So basically you apply to a bunch of schools, application fees, applications, every school is different. And then on match day, you get the program who wants you chooses you. So you can only go to that program who matched you. You don't get to pick and choose where you go. Um, mm. So, you know, you have to rank them and then whichever lowest rank also picks you is where you go. When you Does say lowest sense? rank, you mean your least preferred option or your most preferred option? <laughs> Your most preferred. Okay. So whichever one is higher on your list. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. And so, but when you originally go into your undergrad, there's nothing like that. You just go to whatever school you apply to and get accepted to, and that's you just go through that. Yeah, yeah. You do have to get, um, you do have to get accepted into their dietetic program. So that's another. It's not as rigorous as the matching, but you still have to get accepted into that program. What do you have to do to get into that? Are there any like requirements like previous before that that they look for or? I think it's just GPA, um, pretty much GPA and making sure that you have the prerequisites, um, like freshman years when you get the prerequisites and then sophomore years when you actually apply into that program. Oh, okay. So you're not actually into the, the dietetics program until after you've already gone through your freshman year. Correct. Gotcha. So then if you have like that a crappy fun. GPA, they might disqualify you from getting into it. Exactly. Yeah. I see. Okay, so so then what happens that you you get matched and you did you have any schools that were like all the way across the country that were on your you applied to and you were like I really hope I don't get like the University of Idaho or something. Oh my gosh! So I did not. I I took a lot of time thinking about it because I was I was like, all right, might as well just apply to like 20 different schools, hoping that I get one because it is very very competitive. Um, but I ended up just sticking to Ohio. I wasn't quite ready to leave, you know, my family and where I was. Um, growing up in the state. So I just chose Ohio, although I will say my, I believe I did top five. So I picked five schools and my fifth one, I was like, if I get this, I'm going to be very upset because I really don't want to go here. But, you know, do you want to share, do you want to share which one it was? Yeah, that um, it was Case Western. Where are they? Uh, they're somewhere like, I think Akron area, I want to say. Oh, okay. Don't quote me on that, but 
somewhere in that area. And I was, or no, I've, o- I've only ever been to Cleveland in Ohio. It might be Cleveland, one of those areas. One of those crappy um, places like Cleveland or Akron. <laughs> and I was like, man, I'm going to be really upset if I get that, but it all worked out. So nice. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. So you apply, uh, you get accepted to your, uh, you know, your master's program, what happens next? Like how many years does the program uh, take? Like what's the course lo- coursework look like? That sort of thing. Yeah. So like I mentioned in 2024, they are actually going to require dietitians to get a master's degree at the same time of their internship. In my case, I just chose to do them at the same time because one, I love school and studying. And I was like, if I'm ever going to get my master's, might as well do it now. Um, but two, so if you, if you didn't decide to do that, you, you would have been able to like just do an internship and get your, without having a master's, but basically just having a bachelor's. Correct. Okay. Go ahead. Sorry. And what was the second one? Yeah. And the, just kind of going off of that, the way that I was thinking is, okay, if they're going to require it in a couple years, then all of these, you know, new graduates that are coming out are going to have a leg up on me and I don't want that to happen. I want to stay competitive. So Makes sense. in my head, I was like, well, <laughs> if I, if I don't get the master's now, I'm not going to end up going back to school because that's just too hard for me as far as the stage of life I'm in. So that was kind of what made that decision for me. Okay, perfect. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So then once you get in there and you said you're doing, you decided to do internship in combination with school how long does that take? How many hours of your intern? Like, how do you get selected for where you're going to do your internship or who you're going to work with? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So for my program with the master's and internship combined, it was a 16 month program. So a little less than two years, like a year and a half or so. Mm -hmm. And, um, the internship was 1200 hours of supervised practice, which was completely unpaid, um, which was a lot of work, but yeah, 1200 hours, how many, that's like 40 hours a week for like how many weeks? Oh, it's, uh, <laughs> I don't, I'm not good at mental math, We're not but, gonna math it out. but that, that's, that's probably like at least like what, like three or four months of like a full-time job. I think it's more like six or seven. I want to say you You'll said 1200 12, hours. Yeah. 1200. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's 30 weeks. Which is like, like you yeah. said, actually, that's that's like half a year, like more than half a year of a full-time job. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's a lot. And you're, I actually paid for it. Um, you have to pay, you know, all of these different kinds of fees. So it's like you're paying to work for free, which is Hard. kind of crazy to me. But yeah, yeah. so it's a lot. Um, but I will say, you know, as far as that experience was, I had a lot of different rotations. So every month or two, I would go to a new site. So it was hospitals, which was a clinical setting. It was outpatient centers, which was a community setting, um, schools. It was, you know, different, um, seeing different athletic programs. It was, it was a lot of different places. So for that, I'm really grateful that I got to, you know, have so many different experiences. So, so what type of work are you doing at all of these different locations? And is it like uh, you work at one place for like a month and another place for a month? Or is it like depending on the day of the week, it's different? Yeah, so it's, it's usually one at a time for anywhere from one to three months is where you're at a specific location. Um, so some of them were only a month long and some of them were a couple months. And typically the longer ones were like at a hospital setting or an outpatient clinic setting where you would actually be doing counseling um, with the patients of those places. Gotcha. 
And during that time, did you have like a specific one that you kind of like tended to favor type of work? Yeah. So my favorite, my all time favorite rotation out of those 16 months um, was actually my last rotation, which was at WIC, which is Women, Infant and Children. Um, It's a center, you know, helping pregnant women um, postpartum and then, you know, children as well. So that was honestly my favorite and it happened to be the last one that I was at. So it's awesome. Nice. Awesome. So then you're doing your coursework. You have your uh, your 1,200 hours of uh, supervised practice that you need to do. After that, then you get your certificate. Is there like a GPA standard? Like, do you need to do actually like good during your super? If you're just like horrible, do they not give it? To, do you still get it if you're like horrible? Like, how does that work? Yeah. Yeah. So the supervised practice where we were in our rotations, we didn't necessarily get graded on a GPA scale. It was mostly um, you know, you get feedback from your your preceptor, which was our person who was in charge of us at every rotation, and you would get feedback from them. And if, if you did terrible, then you would have to do another similar rotation, but that doesn't typically happen. Um, but the GPA in the courses for our master's degree was what really mattered. So we had to get a B minus or better in every course that we took. Right. I see. Yeah. So then after all of this happens... Uh, you get your, you, you graduate and you get your, your RD certification mm-hmm. along yeah, like so, almost six year period. Yeah. So it, uh, it's a little bit more than that. So once you graduate from masters and get your um, internship all signed off, then you have to study for the exam, which is a big, you know, credentialed exam, obviously. And typically people study for a couple months. Sometimes people study for up to a year. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a very very big exam. So I spent a couple months studying for that. And this is after you are done with the rotation and all your coursework. Yeah, correct. Gotcha. Yeah. So it's basically like your equivalent of like taking the bar exam. Exactly. And, yep. And, and what's the name of the exam again? Um, it's just the RD Registered Dietitian exam. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. And would you would you describe it? Was it actually difficult when you got it and you get your grade back, or is it like a pass fail type thing? Dude, I'll tell you everything I studied, nothing was on the exam. Like it was everything that I did not study. I was like, I don't know how I I did. I did fine on it. It's not like I barely passed or anything, but I was like, holy shit, this is unlike anything I've ever seen before. But apparently my intuition did me fine. So (laughs) I guess if you, that's what I said before you came on this podcast, I was like, if you know your stuff, you don't need to prepare that much. Exactly. Yes. But yeah, hardest exam hands down I've ever taken. Yeah. And then after all of this is done, then you finally get those two letters next to your name, RD. Yeah. Well, first of all, you have to pay for, you know, all of the different credentialing and go through and get the licensing. And so the process isn't quite over. Once oh, it's you still pass, not over. What the hell? Okay. It's still not over. It's, man, I'll tell you, it's a, it's a process. But yeah, after you get, you know, pay for the licensing and all of that, then you finally get to put it after your name. Got it. And you get like a nice little plaque or something at least? So they didn't even send me one um, in person. They just like messaged me online with a, you know, uh, um, a little plaque that's a picture, but they didn't send me anything. That's lame. They, they even sent me like for, for my NASM certifications, they send me a piece of paper that has my stuff on it for uh-huh. all of them. Like even for freaking uh-huh. NASM, they do that. I was thinking like all this time and money on your RD certification, they don't even send you like a real like paper hard oh, copy. Like, you know how you always see when you go into someone's office, all of their credentials up on the wall. I was like, yeah, I have great. Over here. I'll be able to, yeah, I'll be Mine able are to lame, have though. 
<laughs> like nothing. They don't give you anything. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I know. So I think the, one of the reasons why I wanted to go, I think it's really educational and it's, and it's, it's eye-opening. And I actually learned quite a bit. I hope the people listening did too. But also if you say like, oh, I'm an, a registered dietitian versus a nutritionist, you're like, I went to school for that. They're like, yeah, sure, great. I went to school too. But yeah. like the difference in the amount of time and effort and work and like you really got to want it to be an RD versus, you know, I can just decide whenever to be a nutritionist. Like there's, there's a huge difference there. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. There's, there's so much shit that you have to go through and albeit it was worth it. It was well worth it. And, you know, like I said, it's not that I don't think that there's value in that certification. There absolutely is. It's just not the end all be all. So why that was actually the the perfect segue to where I wanted to go next. So why do you think the RD certification is not maybe all it's cracked up to be? Yeah. So in in my experience, and like I said, I'm not I'm not gonna shit talk anyone in particular or the profession or anything like that. Do you have but, any friends who are RDs? Also. Oh yeah. 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 So I I will just say kind of broadly, um, you can pass the RD exam and not be a good dietitian. So that's just it's straight up facts. I mean, it's with anything, a certified personal trainer, um, as you probably know, you know, you just study the books, see what they say, and you know, you can pass it. Yeah, 90% so, of the industry sucks, we know that. <laughs> yeah, so to me, I've learned that the real life application of things and how, how much continuing education someone actually takes upon themselves and not just through the coursework that we have, shows a lot more about how good of a dietitian and any medical professional really that you're going to be rather than just going through the coursework, studying and passing an exam. Right. So it's if they actually take initiative to become good at their yeah. craft versus just memorizing stuff and gaming the system. Yes, for sure. And like I said, I've seen many, many RDs, especially on social media, just saying things that are blatantly untrue and we're not all perfect. I probably, you know, mess up my words on some things as well, but some things that are just blatantly untrue that, you know, Oh, I'm a registered dietitian. You should listen to me. I don't agree with that. And I see it too often. Yeah. Even if they don't put out that, they don't like say that in the video. It's like, that's the assumption based on like your title and you're like having your credentials all behind you and you're and all of the, and you know, yeah. People wear they'll wear like a lab coat just because it gives them an air of authority. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. I I understand completely what you're saying, and in terms of the so where do you think this comes from? Like, do you think it's the is is it things they're learning in school that aren't right, or are the things that they're just picking like they're they're getting the RD certification and then they're just picking up stuff elsewhere and just like spreading crap, or is it like are they trying to make money off of something? Like, what do you, what do you think these these reasons why these things happen? Yeah, good question. I think it's it's a it's a lot of things coming together. In my opinion and from what I've seen through my schooling and just interacting with, you know, different faculty in the profession, a lot of a lot of registered dietitians are very protective of that credential, right? Because they know how much they had to go through to get that. And so I get it. When you see someone who has no right giving nutrition advice, it's frustrating going through all these things and having someone call themselves a nutritionist and give that advice. But at the same time, you kind of have to humble yourself and be like, all right, listen, I did this for me because I wanted to, you know, be more credentialed, whatever the case may be. But that doesn't mean that other people aren't as good as me because they don't have that credential because they couldn't afford to go through and pay for all of this schooling. So to me, you kind of have to humble yourself a little bit and be like, all right, 
I'm not above all these people just because they don't have that certification. Okay, so maybe it's you're saying it's like a little bit of guruism mixed yeah. with I know because I have the certification, I'm the guru, I'm up here, you don't have the certification, you're down here. Also and and maybe that also mixes together with the idea that they don't they take it that because they have that certification, they are correct, even though they're not maybe holding themselves to the standard that the certification should be held to. 100%. Couldn't have said it better. Yeah. I thought, I don't think I said it particularly well. (laughs) No, no, I, I totally agree with that. I think it's, it's hard. Like I said, it's a fine line you draw between, yeah, we did, you know, go through all of this extra work to get it. But also there are just as great of, you know, healthcare professionals, coaches that didn't get that, but they still know their shit. And I think they should be valued as well. Gotcha. Now, who do you look up to in like the, in terms of diet? Are there, is there anybody like in the industry that you're like, this person is like a gleaming bastion of like what a dietitian should be, or like a fitness communicator who is a dietitian. And then maybe we don't have to talk about like the negative ones because there's a lot of ones out there, but maybe, maybe <laughs> just the positive one. Yeah, so um, I'm going to be honest, there's not really any dietitians that are in my particular field that I really, you know, look up to. It's mostly just good fitness coaches um, or nutrition coaches. So it sucks because I wish there was more people that I found that I, you know, agreed with what they were saying that I really trusted them that were registered dietitians in the space. But unfortunately, there's not. And maybe I just haven't found them yet. That's not to say that there isn't great ones, but there's not really any RDs I follow that are, you know, also coaches that I really look up to. Have, have you ever uh, heard of uh, or seen like an- the anti-diet dietitian? Okay. I think, I feel like that sounds so familiar. I don't watch those kinds of things, so I don't know, but I could, I, I've heard that name. And, yes. and also I think, I don't remember uh, Amelia Thompson, PhD. I, I don't know if she's a dietitian. She might have a dietitian certification in there somewhere, but those are the two that like, I, I think of, and I think like they're kind of similar vein to like Spencer Nadolsky, who we were talking about earlier in terms of like the type of stuff they put out. And like, I, I completely agree with you though. Like the people who do like this, like pop fitness type stuff, like where it's like, here's five exercises to blast your abs. I'm not really like a fan of that. I don't know about. Yeah. Yeah. And here's it's five funny. foods you should avoid no matter what. <laughs> right. Right. And a lot of it is just, you know, eye catching, like I get it. You have to kind of be out there a little bit to get attention on social media. Um, but talking about, you know, the anti-diet crowd, this is, this is something that I see is very common with dietitians. And I don't really know why it is, but kind of like the, the health at every size, the anti-diet um, crowd, then I feel like a lot of dietitians are in that space. And I don't completely agree with a lot of the things that they say, the methodologies. Um, I don't think it's okay to be telling people who are at a critical state that it's okay and they're perfectly healthy at the size they're at. I don't think that's a good thing to be telling people, um, especially when their health is at risk. So to me, it's like we said, it's a fine balance between using evidence-based strategies and also, you know, behavioral change and lifestyle changes to get someone to a truly healthy place. So what in particular about like anti-diet, maybe not, because I have enormous problems with anti-diet culture like in terms of what it kind of but that's the thing is i have a huge problem a a large number of problems with like fitness culture in general too um but when it comes to like the actual like the people in the 
who are kind of like maybe like more anti-diet space who are actually putting out good information. I'm not sure if I actually really disagree with a lot of what they're saying, simply because my at least understanding of of much of this is they're not telling people at least the people who are evidence-based, they're not like telling people that you can be healthy at any size. They're simply looking at it from the perspective of, hey, there's a lot of evidence to show that like throwing the information in people's faces does not actually help them like implement those into changing their lifestyle. Um, many people have huge difficult, especially the people who need to lose the most weight. Like it seems to be those are the people who are actually like the least receptive to that type of thing. Maybe instead we should take a more caring and compassionate approach toward helping them. That at least in my experience, as I kind of like learned more about like what they do, uh, is kind of where it seems to me that like the good in it is, but what do you, what's your take on that? And like, what do you, what would be a particular, is there a particular, any particular things that you just really don't like about the anti-diet uh, type thing? Yeah, so there's definitely, there's two sides, right? I see the purpose of it to be inclusive, to be caring, empathetic. I understand that. And I, I believe that I am all of those things towards my clients, patients, whatever. But what I don't agree with is when some of these anti-diet or health at every size, um, you know, type gurus are talking about tracking your calories or tracking your macros being a diet. And I actually just made a, a TikTok about this um, yesterday. It was something with regards to, you know, the, they aren't a diet. They're, sim they're simply a tool to use with your nutrition. They're not prescribing a diet that's limiting foods. It's very flexible. Um, and it's a tool that you use, like you track your weight or like you track your water, like anything that you track that's data is exactly what that is. So I think something that bothers me about anti-diet culture is they very much so look down on tracking any aspect of your food and to me, you know, of course, there's certain people with disordered eating or eating disorders that it wouldn't be good for, but that's not most of the population. So that's kind of where I, I draw the line there. Right. I think their counterpoint to that, though, by my understanding, might be that even though like tracking does not is not like a diet, there's actually a lot of problems that tracking like additionally may create for people. Like, again, the people who may actually need to track the most are the people who are least capable of doing it. So maybe there's other strategies that would best fit those people. Yes. And that's where, that's where experience with nutrition comes in, right? Cause I totally agree with you. I think there's so many different strategies that you can use other than tracking to get people to make these lifestyle changes, behavioral changes. Um, and I totally agree with that, but the issue is that most people don't know these other strategies. So they just, you know, resort to tracking your food. That's what everyone knows. So that's kind of where the disconnect is, is like, okay, how do we find what's going to work for this person, not cause any kind of disordered eating behaviors and still, you know, reach the goal. I also think like a lot of the noise in this space and a lot of spaces, this is true, is people getting like information from people who are like good coaches or like good uh, purveyors of information, but then they put their own spin on it or they make, they ch kind of change the meaning of the initial thing that's being out put out there. And then that's what's actually incorrect. Like it might be like there's a kernel of truth in what they're saying. Like calorie tracking is not, you know, going to work for everyone, but then they will take that to say like calorie deficit doesn't work when it's like <laughs> calorie deficit obviously works. It's like a, a thermodynamic uh, thing. It's just like, it, it's like, it's, it's physics, right? It's like, 
you can't create or destroy energy. <laughs> like it's basic yeah. physics. Um, well, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, some people will say that hormones are what comes into play when it comes to calorie deficit, but hormones play into the role of energy balance. So energy balance is a huge overarching thing. Hormones can contribute to whether you burn more or burn less, but over, you know, the overarching thing is energy balance. You can't get away from calories in versus calories out. So like you said, I think that's where people go wrong is they miss a certain part of the information and they just convey completely incorrect things um, when really you're just, you know, missing a piece of the puzzle. So what would you say to someone who may, who might say like, I can't lose weight because of my hormones or I can't maintain a healthy body weight because my hormones just, it just makes it impossible for me to do this. Yeah. So I think that that kind of scapegoat is really common. And yes, there is a small percentage of the population where we actually do have to work on fixing your hormones before we can get you into a healthier place metabolically. But for most people, it's, it's just a scapegoat, right? They're not, they're either not being truthful about what they're eating. They're not being completely accurate. Um, and again, like there's only a small amount of people who's, who really we need to work on the hormones for, in my opinion, and what I've seen. So if they're in your experience, if there is someone in that small subset, like that, maybe like maybe 1% of the people who use that excuse, there's actually like a you know, okay, yeah, we really need to work on your hormones. What What's like the strategy for that person? Yeah. So this is something that I, I've only kind of dabbled in. I don't, if I have someone who requires more, um, you know, hormone regulating type things, I likely won't take them on. But in my experience, if it's very minor, like if they have a background of um, severe restriction and their metabolism is just all over the place, it really comes down to getting them in a better place metabolically, right? So that their um, their energy balance is in a more healthy place rather than, okay, I'm only eating a thousand calories and gaining fat, right? Like how can we get that up to, you know, 1600 and then you're losing fat. So almost like what we like to call in this space, a reverse diet. So, you know, upping their calories, they're probably going to gain some weight, gain some fat, but their body will be in a much healthier place at that point, and then we can work it back down. Right, but you said for some people with severe hormonal issues, you won't even touch that. And I think that, at least in my experience, from what I'm seeing, I've seen this is like a, a very severe blind spot. Of people who are either in this situation because they actually they they think they are, but they really aren't, or because they actually are in this situation where they have these severe hormonal problems, and they then tend to move in the direction because there are a lot of evidence-based fitness coaches that go, I don't really know a lot about that or that's outside of my scope of practice. Then they move in the direction of like, for lack of a better term, like quackery. Like that's where they go. They go to like the person who's telling them they need to use the essential oils or they need to use the, you know, rub hemp root on their asshole or something. I don't know. (laughs) Like how, how do you kind of circle that square and get them back to reality? Yeah, so I, I'm a firm believer, you know, going through all of the experiences that I have and all of the schooling and knowledge that I have that nutrition can fix a hell of a lot of things. Not everything, but I feel like everything pretty much stems from the quality of your food, the quantity that you're eating, and your, your nutrition history, right? What have you done in the past? So for me, I always start from that place. Um, obviously, you know, the mindset is important as well, but nutrition is a big piece of a lot of these things that are happening with our health. So I think starting from there, getting someone to a healthier place, 
with the quality of their food and the quantity and then, you know, fixing stress management, um, recovery and different things like that. That would be where I would go. Okay. So stress management and and recovery from training, obviously you're talking about, right? And stress management in terms of just training stress or other stress? Yeah. uh, Life stress, training stress, any kind of added stress, you know, a calorie deficit is a stress. So if that's something that we need to take out for the time being, even though their goal is fat loss, it's something we have to do. Awesome. Got it. Makes perfect sense. Um, so Casey, I have a few questions that I got from, uh, different people that I wanted to, I only got a handful of them. Um, but I do have some questions that I would like to ask you, um, your opinions on, and we'll try to t- make them fairly quickly because we only got maybe 15 minutes left. Uh, okay. are you ready to, uh, b- answer these questions? I'm ready. Let's go. Okay. Question number one. Uh, what, right, I'm, I'm just going to read it as it's written. One cue I have in re- is in regards to coconut oil, is it healthy or something to avoid? So many opinions out there, so hard to know the truth. Thanks. I love it. Yeah, so this is something that has very recent research that we learned about in schooling. Um, so I'm aware coconut of this research. Oil, I believe I know what you're going to say, but go ahead. <laughs> so long story short, no, it's not bad for you. It does contain saturated fat. Um, predominantly. So that is kind of what we used to think as the not so healthy fat or the bad fat. Um, But that that turns out not to be the case, right? So as long as your diet overall is relatively healthy, whole, unprocessed foods, eating a good amount of saturated fats isn't really going to be a detriment to your health. Um, Now, if you're eating, you know, coconut oil and a bunch of, you know, a box of Twinkies every day and all of these refined carbs, it's probably not going to be the best thing, but for the average person, it's it's not bad for you at all. Gotcha. So you're saying it's all about moderation. Correct. And, yep. and I do know that there's a specific percentage of your, I do not know off the top of my head what it's supposed to be, but there's a specific percentage of your calories that is recommended. You should not have more saturated fats than X amount of your intake. Is that is that correct? Is that the, There is a number like that yeah. out there, right? Yeah. Typically it's 10%, 10% for okay. people who, yep. Got yep. it. Perfect. Now, here's another thing, because the person didn't ask this, but I know this is kind of a common question as well in relation to this. Does coconut oil, is coconut oil like inherently healthier than any other like vegetable oils? So in my opinion, no. Um, I think it's great for a lot of things like your hair and your skin. So those are something. We're talking dietarily though, like internally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would say no. Um, You know, obviously getting a variety is going to be best of any kind of food, um, but I don't think any one is inherently healthier than the other. Now, monounsaturated fats, and this is getting very specific, but your oils like um, olive oil or avocado oil, those monounsaturated are considered the quote unquote best fats if you had to consume some. Um, so, you know, extra virgin olive oil is probably going to be a better choice than something like coconut oil, but right. And I find that quite interesting because a few years ago, the trend was coconut oil is healthier than olive oil Mm -hmm. when it seems the opposite is actually true. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and the reasoning for that is because, well, in my understanding, it's because, um, the what what type of I always get the names mixed up because I am not a technical I'm a lay person but what the coconut oil is a, a polyunsaturated fat or polysaturated fat versus a mono what, what was it again so coconut oil is more saturated fat whereas 
avocado or olive oil are more monounsaturated. Right, right. And the, and the very high intakes of the saturated fats are associated with certain things like, I believe, increased blood pressure and a higher risk of heart disease versus yeah. the, other, uh, what were, the other ones are not. The monounsaturated fats are not. Yep, correct. Is that the main reason? Am I, am I correct in that? Yeah, so heart disease is the biggest one that we want to worry about with our, with our fat intake. Yeah. Perfect. Okay, question two. Thoughts on the carnivore diet. Uh, there are many peer-reviewed studies about it. I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so carnivore diet, for people who don't know, is um, eating all meat. So in my opinion, I don't really like any kind of diet like that. Um, just because one, it's super restrictive. It's not really sustainable for a lot of people who would just want to eat meat and no other fun foods the rest of their life. Um, but two, I think you're lacking things like fiber that come from vegetables. You're lacking all of the powerful, um, antioxidants and properties for your immune system that come from plants as well. So to me, having a mix of both, um, is always going to be more beneficial than just one or the other. So are you aware of any like peer-reviewed evidence on the carnivore diet specifically? Not. So I've read some about like weight loss. I've read some um, very specific to like what they're trying to do, but none that are saying like these are, this is the end all be all to health in a diet. Mm -mm. So anything specific about the carnivore diet would, that you would say like makes it special or makes it like a good idea or would you say, Yeah. Yeah, so I think there's a lot from what I've seen. There's more research as far as um, weight loss goes or weight maintenance, just because it's hard to overeat a large quantity of meat. I mean, you and I both know that yes. it's very hard to, you know, just consume meat. So I think for that reason, it's very satiating. Um, you know, beef itself has a lot of great nutrients, so that would be um, a definite pro. But there's absolutely a lot of cons to it too. What would you say are like the main three cons? Number one, no fiber, because fiber is only found in plant-based foods. Um, number two, variety, right? So there's tons of variety in plant-based products and not very much in uh, meat products. Three, sustainability, just, you know, being able to adhere to it long-term. What about like a, a very high saturated fat intake? Would that be like being correlated with heart disease? Is that also a problem? <laughs> Yeah, so I actually, I haven't seen much research on that with regards to the carnivore diet, but in general, yeah, you want to have a balance of unsaturated and saturated. You don't, yeah. it's like anything else, right? You don't want to be all one or all the other. You want to find somewhere in the middle. So yeah, yeah. for sure. And, and my understanding is that there's evidence that like outside of the carnivore diet, like high saturated fat intakes are obviously linked with heart disease, but the carnivore diet person's argument is that there is not data to show that within the carnivore diet that this is unhealthy like if you are eating an, an all-meat diet that that would be unhealthy but my counterpoint to that would be there's also no evidence to show that it is <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and it's funny because a lot of the research when it comes to saturated fat intake is actually not the saturated fat itself but the foods and all of the other ingredients that are in foods that have saturated fats, right? So oftentimes your highly processed foods that have, you know, a bunch of shit in them that you don't need also have saturated fat. So it's like, okay, what one caused it? Was it the saturated fat or was it the quality of your food in general? And to me, I lean towards the overall quality rather than the specific kind of fat. I see. So would you ever try the carnivore diet? No, I don't think I would poop for like a whole week. Would, so. you, would you ever recommend it for a client? Mm, um... 
that's really tough. I right now I'm going to say no, but my views could change. So I, I'm not going to say definitively that I wouldn't, but right now, no. Good answer, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, uh, do you work with people? Are, are we good on that uh, topic or would you, would you have anything else yeah. to add? Okay, good. Number three, do you work with people with eating disorders? What are your thoughts on disordered eating and how should people with potential eating disorders seek help? Yeah, that's a great question. So I have worked with people with active eating disorders. Um, a lot of times I see more disordered eating than actual eating disorders, but nonetheless, it's, you know, it's a very similar. So, so what, um, what would you say is the difference between disordered eating and an eating disorder? Yeah, so the I think the main difference is an eating disorder is continued behavior um, under specific guidelines. So for each eating disorder, there's, you know, the um, there's like a couple different guidelines that you have to meet in order to be classified with that eating disorder. Whereas disordered eating is just any kind of, you know, pattern that you notice that might not be regular for you. Hmm. So it's essentially mm -hmm. like uh, for it to be an eating disorder, there has to be pathology. Yes. Got it. Yep. So it's the difference between like being like in the mood of depressed or having depression. 100%. That's a really good analogy. I'm going to use that. I like that. Please do. I actually just made it up. I'm great at yeah. this. Yeah. Okay. That's a good one. But yeah, I would say, so working with someone, we'll say with an eating disorder at first, um, first and foremost, that almost always comes from something in the mind, right? Some kind of mindset, either block or some kind of struggle that someone is having from an early age, um, something that's going on that they're not quite thinking um, you know, the way a normal person would about food. So a lot of times it comes from changing that mindset, shifting it to um, a more healthy one. And then as far as disordered eating goes, that's a lot of behavior change and also mindset, but just a lot of, um, you know, becoming aware of how are we, um, how are our, how is our eating disordered? And then what can we do to improve that as far as our diet goes? So you do work with people with eating disorders, and, and what would be your advice to people uh, with potential eating disorders for seeking help? Yeah, so I would say NEDA, N-E-D-A, is the National Eating Disorder Association. I believe that they have a hotline um, that you can call and talk to someone, and they will connect you to a professional in your area or, you know, online. That's going to be, I think, your your best route. Now, if you, if you have time and you, you know, want to find one in your area yourself, I think... Um, finding a registered dietitian who has a background in eating disorders will be best um, or someone with, you know, extensive experience, but those would be. So may maybe not like a random person off social media who claims to be an eating disorder expert. No, no. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so are we good on that or do we have anything else to add there at the end? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it can be hard. So if you are someone who is struggling with, either disordered eating or an eating disorder, or you just find something is not quite right with the way that you're viewing food or the way that you're eating it, just talk to, talk to someone, talk to a specialist, talk to me, message me on Instagram. Um, I think getting, getting help and getting that message out there to someone else is going to be way more helpful than anything you can do on your own. Fantastic. Um, last question. What are your thoughts on the keto diet? I was thinking about doing it, but I was wondering if I should work with a nutritionist. <laughs> the age-old question, the keto diet. 
Yeah, so for people who don't know, the keto diet is very low carbohydrate, um, moderate protein, and then high fat. So a large you know, amount of your food is going to be coming from fat. It's like the light version of the carnivore diet. It, it is, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so really the only, and this, this goes back to the research, the only application that is actually proven to work for the long term in keto is going to be people with epilepsy or seizures. Um, that was the main reason that the diet was, you know, it came to be. Now people have taken it and, you know, run with it and be like, oh yeah, I can eat less if I'm not eating a lot of carbs. Yes, it comes down to calorie deficit, calories in versus calories out. If you're not eating a lot of carbs and you usually do, you're going to end up eating less. So that's really what it comes down to. So is there anything unique about the keto diet that it, it like circumvents calorie deficit in some way or that the calories in keto don't count as much or something like that? People like to think that, but that that's absolutely not the case. I think I would never really prescribe the keto diet to anyone. I would never really recommend it to anyone. Oftentimes, you know, you can lose weight quick and say that it works, but then, you know, a couple months later, a year later, you gain it all back and even more. So to me, it's just a kind of a short-term fix that, that is not sustainable. It's not something that's going to help you reach those results in the long term. Okay, so what about the second part? Like if I was thinking about working with a nutritionist uh, with the keto diet. So I would want to ask you why you would like to do the keto diet. Is it for weight loss? Is it for overall health? Um, is it for preference? The only time I would recommend it is if you're a person who doesn't really like carbs. Um, and in that case, great. I, I haven't met anyone that's like that. But if you are that person, then by all means, go for it. But I think I've to me, one. I would. I know. I have a little more I, life experience. <laughs> I don't yeah. I've met, I've met the one person on earth who doesn't like carbs. <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah. And for that person, great. But I think, you know, I wouldn't recommend you work with a nutritionist probably in general, unless they have a lot of experience, um, especially with the keto diet. They're just, they're going to be looking for those fast results for you. And it's, it's not something that's going to be good in the long run. What if it's like a nutritionist that promotes the keto diet? Then definitely not. Definitely not. This actually, why? I have, I have yet to find someone and I've, I've done research on this. I have yet to find someone who has gone through the keto diet for weight loss or for health and been able to actually achieve their, their body composition and health goals in a one to five year span. I have yet to met someone in that. So it's possible, but I don't think that for 99.9% of people, it's a good idea. Have you ever met a dietitian or a nutritionist who specifically advocates for the keto diet above other diets who is actually good? Yes. Oh, so okay. I will, so I will say, um, are they common? That's the second part of the question. Yeah. So what's his name? He works at Ohio state. He actually works with, um, or he worked with the crew soccer team, which is Columbus's, um, I don't know if it's pro, but they're a main soccer team. And he actually had all of his athletes on keto and they actually did pretty well. Um, but my concern with that is their athletes, right? They're burning a lot of calories. So it kind of will end up evening out anyway. And two, how are those athletes doing after they're not with the team anymore? I don't think that the results are actually going to stick. So that's the only one I've seen. 
Okay, but you haven't really seen like many great. Like, would you say if if you see like someone on social media who's a nutritionist and they're promo- heavily promoting the keto diet, would you say that's someone that would be a good idea to work with or someone you should trust? Without seeing them, I would say no. Obviously, I would have to dig into it more. But I firsthand just hearing that it does not sound like a good idea to me. <laughs> gotcha. Okay, fair enough. Um. All right, so that's about it with the questions. Uh, Casey, I have actually one more question, and this is a question I ask pretty much everybody on the podcast when I do remember this, and I wish I, ha- I kept I – ha- I need to come up – I need to go back through all of my, like, 50-plus podcasts at this point and come up with a ranking because the question is, what is your best squat, bench, deadlift, and overhead press? <laughs> oh, okay, okay. How many, uh, how many females have you interviewed? Oh, a lot. Uh, a lot. I'd say okay. it's, quite, it's pop- possibly more than 50% of my guests. Okay, solid. So my best, and this is a great question because I I used to do mostly powerlifting um, focus. So my best squat is 265. Mm -hmm. Um, Bench is 155. That's actually pretty damn good, 265 squat. What was your best bench? 155. Okay. And then deadlift was 285. That's weak. Come on. I know. My my deadlift, I don't even like deadlifts that much. That's why that one sucks. But You switched to sumo. You're going to add like 100 pounds to that. Man, I hate sumo. I do not like sumo at all. Yeah. But, I'm, I'm with you there. I tried running sumo for a while, and I, I was really happy. Like, I, I got to – I did, like, 315 for 10 on sumo once, and I was, like, really happy about that. And then I was, yeah. like – and I, I after that, I just, like – I've never been able to do sumo for, like, low rep stuff and get, like, heavier weight. Like, I've always lifted heavier on, on conventional deadlift. Yeah, and how – like, how long are your arms and your legs and your torso? I think my arms are actually kind of long. I think my torso is kind of short. So people – I've been told – but my legs are also kind of long. I feel like I have long arms, long legs, short torso, which I think a lot okay. of people think is, like, a good sumo. But it's not like – I'm not cartoonishly like that. I'm not like an orangutan or something. Right. right. <laughs> no, I feel, I feel like everyone's either one or the other. You're conventional or sumo, whatever is more comfortable. So I just prefer conventional. Yeah. Awesome. Me too. So, Casey, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Do you have anything you want the entire world to know before we sign out? Oh, that's such a big question. Um, Not really. I think just be mindful of where you're getting your information, where you're getting your sources. So it doesn't have to be from a registered dietitian. It doesn't have to be, you know, from someone with a list of certifications. Just make sure you kind of look into it. You see who they've worked with, what their experience has been. Um, and make an educated guess on whether they're a good source of information or not. I think there's a lot of, of shitty information out there, and once you find the good sources, I think you'll be golden. I have a good litmus test, actually, of this, and I, it, I didn't come up with this, but it was essentially, are they making uh, are they making very large claims on very limited evidence? Mm-hmm. And that's like one of the biggest tells of if someone's a hack. I like that. That's a good one. I, like I think it. I think I might have heard it from like Mike Israel. I don't know if you know who who he is, but yeah. it, it might have been yeah. him who said that. Awesome, but yeah, that's that's my biggest piece of advice. Fantastic, uh, Casey. Where can everybody find you? Yeah, so I am mostly like, on no, no. I mean, Instagram. like, what's your home address? And no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, all right, hold up. Um, yeah, so I'm mostly on Instagram and TikTok. So those are both Casey Nicole underscore RD. So C-A-S-E-Y-N-I-C-O-L-E underscore R-D. Perfect. And do you have a website or like anything you want to plug real quick? 
I do not. So I work under a meal prep company. So if you're in the Columbus area and you want to check out our meals, they are visionary meals and that's just visionarymeals.com. You can check out all of our good food. Awesome. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the podcast again. And uh, I, I never know how to end these things. So we're done. We're done. There we go. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you for listening to episode 58 of the Strength for All podcast. Hey, if you like what we're putting down, make sure you leave us a positive review. Make sure you check out our clips on my YouTube page from the Strength for All podcast at Johnny Reps Fitness. Check out myself and Casey's social media platforms, and you can always message one of us with any questions or thoughts that you have about the podcast. I really appreciate all the listens that we get. I really appreciate when you share it with friends, and I really appreciate the opportunity to bring you amazing guests and amazing fitness topics every two weeks. I'll talk to you guys next time in another two weeks. Peace out.